And if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. I will say at the outset, there are passages in Scripture that seem to be the basis of more error than other passages. And we are in a dangerous place in Acts chapter 19. So we want to be very careful. Last time we saw that Paul was sent out on his third missionary journey. We're going to back up just a little bit and read the verses at the end of Acts 18 to remind us what happened. There we met Apollos. You remember Apollos had been in Ephesus. Now in chapter 19, Paul is going to Ephesus. Paul had been in Corinth and Apollos is going to Corinth. You'll see it Achaia in the scripture. Corinth is the capital city of Achaia. That's where Apollos went. So Paul is where Apollos was and Apollos is where Paul was. And the issues that Priscilla and Aquila had addressed with Apollos that we saw last time are the same issues that Paul will encounter when he arrives in Ephesus. So let's begin our reading with chapter 18, verse 23, and we're going to read through chapter 19, verse 7. Acts 18, 23. This is the word of God. Having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through Galatia, through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John, that is John the Baptist. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scripture that Jesus was the Christ. Chapter 19, and it happened while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. That is John the Baptist. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. Let's bow and ask God's blessing on our time. Heavenly Father, we come humbly seeking your blessing. 
We ask that you would bless your word to accomplish your purpose. Make it effectual in us and to us today. To the saving of sinners. For the growth of your church. Both in knowledge and in grace. Help us today to understand what you have done so long ago. To establish your church and then to grow your church. To spread the gospel. Help us as believers in this day, as a church in this day, to follow the pattern that you have provided for us and to not be distracted by so many other things that are around us, by the schemes of Satan. Help us to not be distracted by the imagination of men. Help each one of us today to examine ourselves and to see if we are in the faith. We pray that you would bring confidence and greater hope to those who are truly in Christ. And we ask for those who are outside, those who are estranged from the kingdom, lost and bound this moment for an eternity in hell. God, we ask that you would take away any false hope, any false security that might come from any false profession. God, we pray that you would open their eyes to their own lostness. And that today you would draw them to Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer of God's elect, who was and is and continues to be the God-man, fully divine, yet our brother in humanity. We ask that Jesus Christ would be glorified here today as his word is preached. We ask that you would be pleased to convict us of sin and of righteousness and of coming judgment. It is in the name of Christ Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Today I have a what I think is a very simple message with only two points and we'll get to those two points. But we need to understand this historical narrative and what is taking place here. And we'll see that the application of this text, once we understand it, is quite simple. But a simple application does not mean necessarily that everyone gets it right. So we want to tread carefully. I've already mentioned much error comes from this section of Scripture. And, and as I think about it, maybe more error comes from the book of Acts being misunderstood and, and misapplied than anywhere else. So we want to be careful and we want to get this right. There are many who use this text along with other passages of Scripture, uh, other passages from the book of Acts, to try to say that the gifts, that, that the spiritual gift of tongues is the sign accompanying every person who truly believes. Of course, they say the gift of tongues is still active and valid for today. And that every person who comes to Christ speaks in tongues. And they use passages like this right here. I, I will not be spending our entire time today speaking about the gift of tongues. The biblical gift of tongues. If you would like a fuller treatment of that subject, the gift of tongues. I would point you to a sermon that was preached on August 23rd of 2020. 
here in our church as we were just getting started in our systematic study through the book of Acts. Uh, we've been in this book for almost two years. And back on August 23rd of 2020, I preached a message entitled, Tongues Was a Sign. Tongues Was a Sign. And you can find that message on our website. And you'll see that there if you'd like to know more. That tongues was a sign, uh, a great gift from the Holy Spirit for the Jews, for the church, and for the whole world. And you'll see what tongues signified. We'll see some of that today. Now I would say that at the time of these events recorded in Acts 19, as we're reading and we place ourselves there, the gift of tongues was still active. It was still being used by God to accomplish the purpose for which He gave the gift. So as we read this, tongues is still Active, and we know that because we read and we see what's, what's taking place here in the text. Remember, if you will, what Jesus told the apostles, what he told them about the gospel, that the gospel would go out to the world and that they would be his witnesses in the world. And he defined concentric circles for the gospel to be spread. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Samaria and Jerusalem are cities. Judea is a region. And the uttermost parts of the earth is all of the world. And as we have studied through the book of Acts, Acts has chronicled these events, the, the actions of the apostles. We've said this book should be titled, The Continuing Acts of Our Lord Jesus Christ Through the Holy Spirit Indwelled Church. And we see these things chronicled in the book of Acts and at every milestone, at every marker of these concentric circles, I'm calling them, where the gospel is preached, people believed they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues as a sign. You'll find these events in Acts 2. Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10 and then finally here in Acts chapter 19 we see these markers. In Acts 2 God saved and the Holy Spirit indwelled believers in Jerusalem and the sign of tongues marked this event as an authentic work of God. We see that in Acts chapter 2. The Pentecost that was on Pentecost. Then in Acts chapter 8, God saved and the Holy Spirit indwelled believers in Samaria. Those half-breed Jews. And the sign of tongues marked this, the saving of Samaritans. As an authentic work of God. 
And then if you remember in Acts 10, we saw in the Roman capital of Judea, God saved and the Holy Spirit indwelled believers at Cornelius' house. Gentiles. And they spoke with tongues as a sign that this, even the inclusion of Gentiles in the kingdom, was an authentic work of God. Some have called these events the Pentecosts. Three Pentecosts that we have seen in Acts 2 and Acts 8 and Acts 10. The first Pentecost at Jerusalem, then at Judea and Samaria. And now in Acts 19, we see the fourth and final Pentecost, this last marker, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now in this Asian city of Ephesus, the uttermost parts of the earth. After Acts 19, there's not a place where the gospel will not be preached. Jesus Christ and Him crucified is to be preached in every corner of the globe as God providentially provides opportunity. Now we understand the significance of this text. Let's look at the events of the text as we work through the Scripture. Verse 1 says, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. Remember, Paul had been in Ephesus before. He had told them he would not stay, but I will return if the Lord wills. And now he has indeed returned. Paul is now where Apollos was. Apollos is in Corinth where Paul was. Remember, Apollos had been corrected, and we read those verses today. He had been corrected and further taught in the doctrines of Jesus Christ. But now Paul is at Ephesus where Apollos used to be, and he has some of the same correction to do. Some of the same teaching needs to be done. Apollos may have been further along in his understanding, but there is a common deficiency that we find here between Apollos and these believers in Ephesus, these disciples. That's what verse 1 tells us. Paul found some disciples. He found some disciples. And verse 7 tells us there were in all about 12 men. Now, I don't know if this means there were 12 men and their wives or what. We know there were 12 men and there may have been a few more or maybe not, but there were at least 12 men. Surely as Paul finds these disciples, these 12 men, there is much conversation that takes place. And the text does not give us the full dialogue that happened. We have here a summary. But whatever the conversation was, it led Paul to ask a question. And we see that in verse 2. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I wonder how often we ask questions. Have you come to Christ in faith? Tell me about how you came to Christ in faith. 
How has the Holy Spirit worked in your life? This conversation must have been a wonderful conversation. He asked this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, the King James translators have done the church no favor in the translation of this verse. They translated this verse to read this way. Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? The word since has led to some error here. It's led for some to contend that receiving the Holy Spirit is a second blessing or a second event that comes after faith in Jesus Christ. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And the idea that we would get from the English reading there in the King James is at any time since you believed to now have you received the Holy Spirit. But the original language is very clear. We see how that would be confusing in that translation. But the original language is very clear. The question is not have you received the Holy Spirit since the time you believed, but did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? At that time, in connection with, in conjunction with your believing, did you receive the Holy Spirit? So if your Bible has the word since, feel free to take your pen and draw a line through it and write when. I feel confident in that conversation with these 12 men brought Paul to ask questions. Something they said might have led him to this question, or perhaps it was something he said and then measuring their response or their reaction to his words. Whatever it is, Paul senses that these 12 do not have, they have not received the Holy Spirit. They are believing in something but what they are believing in is not the full gospel of Jesus Christ. He asked the question, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now here again, the wording could be confusing. We need to understand this. Some have thought that these people knew absolutely nothing about the Holy Spirit. We haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? But they will tell Paul that they were followers of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist certainly preached about the Holy Spirit. Now he preached about Jesus and the one who was to come. But he said this. I baptize you with water. I, I baptize you with the water of repentance. But one greater is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John taught about the Holy Spirit. It is thought that these 12 were probably Jews and they would have had some exposure to the Old Testament. Even if they were just followers of John the Baptist, they would have had some exposure to the Old Testament. And there in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is known and talked about and seen to work and prophesied about. They would have known about the Holy Spirit. The point is that they would have been aware of the existence of the Holy Spirit. But they say here, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, let me give you an illustration to explain what I believe this is saying. 
If I said to you, brother, did you get any of the ribs when you had lunch? You might say something like, I didn't even know there were ribs. I would like to put a disclaimer here. To my knowledge, there are no ribs. <laughs> but you might say, I didn't even know there were ribs. And you're not saying, I didn't know there was a thing that existed called a rib. You're not saying that. You're saying, I didn't know that the precious gift of rib was available to us here and now. Do we see that? What they are saying when they say, we don't even know, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. It's not we didn't know that He existed, but we didn't know that the precious gift of the Holy Spirit that was promised, that was to come. We didn't know that was available now to those who believe. We didn't know that. So these men were unaware that the promised Holy Spirit has come. And they were certainly unaware that the promised Holy Spirit has taken up residence in every believer, indwelling the believer. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? When, when you were when you believed? We didn't even know that the Holy Spirit was here and available. Verse 3. Into what then were you baptized? Into what then were you baptized? John, uh, Paul sees here that this baptism that they have had, this, this belief that they have professed, whatever it is, there's a problem with it. There's something here about their baptism that is not right. Into what then were you baptized? And they said into John's baptism. Now, it's not that John's baptism was wrong when it was administered by John, when John was ministering and doing his ministry as forerunner before Christ. That was not wrong. It was not the baptism of Jesus Christ. It was not a baptism that had Christ Jesus and his life and death and resurrection and the Holy Spirit indwelling. It wasn't the baptism that had those things in view. So let me say here very quickly that this is not a fault or an error with John the Baptist's ministry. His ministry was not ever intended to be an end in itself. He pointed to Jesus. He pointed to Jesus as he was supposed to. And these people believed what he said about the one who was to come, the one who was greater. But they simply had not yet heard the fullness. They had not yet heard the end of the story. They had not yet heard about Jesus. Paul said to them in verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in Him who was to come. Him who was coming after Him, that is in Jesus. Paul, in this summary, we find that Paul recounts the meaning and the message of John's ministry. A baptism of repentance and a faith, a belief in a coming Messiah. He spoke about him who was to come after him. John spoke about one who was coming, one who was greater. He spoke about this one to come. 
They had believed in the one to come, but they had not believed in the one who has come. And Paul says here, this is Jesus. Now we only have this summary. We don't have the whole dialogue, but here is where Paul preached the gospel to them. Here is where he told them about the incarnate Son of God. This is where he told them about the virgin birth. This is where he told them about the sinless Son of God. This is where he told them about the cross of Calvary and the imputation of sin to Jesus and his crucifixion. This is where Paul told them about the grave where the body of Jesus was laid. And this is where he told them about resurrection on the third day. He preached the gospel. Then in verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now we can know for certain that this baptism followed their faith. They're believing. They had already believed in what they knew. Now their, their faith, their belief is, is complete. It, it's what it needs to be. It's Christian faith and belief. So they believed and then they were baptized. Then notice we're not saying they were rebaptized. They were baptized with a Christian baptism. The baptism before was not a biblical Christian baptism. It was the baptism of John, and it was good for what it was, but it was not Christian baptism. So as Christians, we don't say they're rebaptized. They were baptized. We read here that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Again here, some have erred because of a misunderstanding of this text. They, they think this constitutes a new formula for baptizing. That we should baptize using this formula in the name of Jesus. But we need to remember once again that this is not the whole dialogue. This is a summary. So what we have here is not all the things that was said. And we don't have the formula that Paul used at their baptism. Rather, what we have here is the foundation for their baptism. Their Christian baptism, unlike the baptism before, their Christian baptism was a Trinitarian baptism. When I use the word Trinitarian, what I mean is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. So their baptism here is a Trinitarian baptism. This is not that they were baptized in the name of Jesus to the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit. We need to remember these words in the name of Jesus and what in the name of means. It's not that in the name of is a magic word. In the name of. I have an illustration that my wife said don't use it. So here goes. <laughs> the other day my dad went to the little hardware store in our small town and he asked me, he said, do you think the owner will let me buy things, purchase things in your name? I said he probably will. He probably will. Now, 
the owner of that hardware store is not going to let merchandise leave his place because there's a magic word, Todd. And you just say the magic word and he says, well, you can have it. That's not what's, what's happening there, right? Can I buy things in your name means there is a promise, there is an authority and he knew my father and he knew that if my father invoked my name, it would be under my authority and that I would pay. That's what in the name of is all about. It's in the power and authority of the one whose name is spoken. So they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And let us remember that baptizing in the name of Jesus, Jesus has the same power and authority he is of the same essence as the Father and the Spirit. So when we baptize, and we baptize in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Spirit, it's not names, plural. It's one authority, one power that is Trinitarian. The power and authority of the triune God. So when we read here that they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Yes, it tells us that they were informed about all that Jesus had done. And his death and his resurrection and his ascension. But the authority for their baptism was Trinitarian. This baptism was in full view of Jesus. And it was a Trinitarian baptism. So this is not a new formula. Verse 6 says, when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak with tongues and prophesy. <clears throat> this is, as we have said, the fourth marker from the words of Christ, the fourth marker. Now the gospel has reached Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and here the uttermost parts of the world and people are saved. They believe in Jesus Christ. They are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And they speak in tongues as a sign that this is an authentic work of God. And every Gentile American Christian should pause to give thanks. That the gospel has come to the uttermost parts of the earth. So this is what happened. Now we understand these events. We, we see what occurred in Ephesus when Paul found these 12 men who are now disciples of Jesus Christ, baptized and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And now we have two points. So that was all introduction. The first thing that we take away from this text is that not everything called baptism is biblical Christian baptism. Not everything that's called baptism do we as Christians call baptism. It's interesting to me in studying this text and in reading commentators and hearing what they have to say, how many of them speak on this passage and say that the baptism of John was insufficient. It was not enough. The baptism that they had received before believing was not enough. Even those commentators who believe in baptismal regeneration 
that baptism saves. Even those who believe in infant baptism. Those who, if you went to their church today and you said, well, I was baptized before I believed, they would say, don't worry, you're all right. That's not this church, by the way. It's surprising to me how many of those men say that this baptism is insufficient. When we here at Waco Family Baptist Church add new members to our church, one of the things that we ask about is baptism. And we want to know if you were baptized with a Trinitarian Christian baptism. That is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We ask about this. We want to know that because biblical Christian baptism is Trinitarian. And this will come as no surprise coming from a Baptist preacher. Biblical Christian baptism is upon ones or after ones faith in Christ. So not everything called baptism is biblical Christian baptism. And secondly, we see this. Not every professor is a possessor. Not everyone who professes Jesus Christ possesses Jesus Christ. Not everyone who claims to be a believer is a true believer in Jesus Christ. These folks believed something, but what they believed in was not enough. Not every person who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. I have been surprised and disappointed by so many Christians who speak of their loved ones, their family members, in this way. Well, they made a profession. They walked down the aisle of the church. They went through the water. So we know they're saved. We know they're Christian. But they've been living in unrepentant sin for so many years, so many decades. One elderly lady in another church told me, my son is 60, but I know he was saved when he was 10. But he hasn't walked with the Lord since. Christians, not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. And what, what disservice we do when we assume that someone is a Christian, what happens? We don't pray for their salvation. Many times we need to we need to recognize that our loved ones are living as lost people. And by the way, what if you're wrong? What if you accidentally pray for the salvation of someone who actually is a believer? Are you going to mess things up? Are you, are you going to mess it up for them? No. You're not going to confuse God. But we err so much on the other side where we don't pray for the salvation of our loved ones. Because we say, well, they walk down the aisle. Well, they said a prayer. Well, they, they say they're a Christian. These 12 
They believe something, but what they believed is not enough. Now, I worry that many of us have been taught something that, that has caused us to have wrong thinking. We've been taught something that has caused us to think in error. Have you ever heard someone speak about head knowledge and heart knowledge? And they're, they're seen in contrast, head knowledge to heart knowledge. Preacher I grew up with used to say, some people are going to miss heaven by about 18 inches. The distance from the head to the heart. The idea, when people speak about head knowledge and heart knowledge, the idea is that you cannot be saved by knowing stuff. You cannot be saved by head knowledge. And there is truth to that. There are many people who know about Jesus and who do things, religious things, who will die and go to hell. Remember those who came to the Lord and they said, Lord, Lord, did we not? So they knew who he was. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many wonderful works in your name? And Jesus said to them, depart from me. I never knew you. It is true that you cannot be saved by knowing facts. But what we lose sight of is that for a person to be saved, they must know something. You've got to know something. A person cannot be saved unless they have a basic elementary understanding of God and who Jesus is and holiness and sin and faith and forgiveness. They must be able to distinguish what it is to try to work your way to heaven and what it is to receive the grace of of God by faith. You got to know something. You can't be saved by only knowing facts, but you can't be saved without knowing some facts. Not every person who says they are a Christian really are a Christian. Maybe maybe some of you here have believed that Jesus is a good teacher. A good person, maybe even a great person. Maybe you've believed and come to terms with the fact that you're not perfect. Maybe even that you're not good enough to get into heaven. Maybe you even believe that Jesus is a Savior, but He's not your Savior. If you've believed the, the teaching of some churches, I should say so-called churches, that your efforts play some part in your salvation, that you can do penance, that you can somehow work off your sin so that you have a better standing with God. If you've believed those things according to Scripture, you are lost. This is what Paul called Another gospel, which is not even a gospel. 
Maybe you have thought, if you're a good American, you put your hand over your heart during the pledge and socially you're okay, then you're automatically a Christian. I heard someone say, well, I, I didn't know, but I'm not a Muslim and I'm not a Jew, so I must be a Christian. That's not how it works. Just because you take your hat off during prayer and you occasionally mention the man upstairs or the good Lord, it doesn't mean you know the Lord. Those things don't do anything to save your eternal soul. Not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Christianity, salvation in Jesus, is believing in Jesus. Believing in what He has done. Not what you will do. Not what you can do. Not what you ought to do. But what He has done in His life and in His death and in His resurrection. And in the act of believing in Jesus for salvation, you also believe that you are a sinner who without Jesus deserves hell. And you believe in Jesus. You believe that there's no other way to be right with God except through Jesus and believing in Him. Friend, if you have never turned to Jesus, forsaking everything else, you need to be saved. You need to believe that His life is sufficient for your good, for your righteousness. You need to believe that His death is payment for your sin. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every profession does not indicate possession of Jesus Christ. You need to know Jesus. Rather, you need to be known by Jesus. All who believe on Jesus Christ will be saved, will have eternal life. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the promise from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. Turn away from your pride. Humbly run to Jesus for salvation. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would apply these words to our heart. We pray for those, those who we love. have yet to know your saving power. And we pray that by your grace you would draw them, that you would convict them, that you would enable them to obey the great command of Scripture to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for sending him to Ephesus that the gospel 
might break out of any boundaries and go to the uttermost parts of the earth. God, we pray as a, as a church that we would honor and glorify you in our preaching, in our church planting efforts, in our ministry abroad, in missions. God, we pray that you would help us to fulfill what you have called us to do in the Great Commission. We ask these things for the good of your church and for your glory. Amen.